COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to Napa Cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa Cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa Cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. Welcome to Episode 2 of Confessions of a Marketer. I'm Mark Reed Edwards, back for another great discussion. I want to thank you for your comments on the first episode, my chat with Tony Temple. My goal for this podcast is to start conversations, and I think we've done that. Lots more to do, of course. In this episode, we're talking with Meg O'Leary, who co-founded Ink House about 10 years ago. Ink House is one of the country's fastest-growing and best PR agencies. Meg and I talk about the evolution of PR in that 10-year span, plus we discuss her recent move to become CMO of a startup. Meg and I talked to her about another 20 minutes or so after we recorded this, and one point came up that Meg wanted to emphasize. She was talking about business-to-business PR for the most part. Consumer PR is a bit of a different animal. Although, given our discussion with Tony last week, maybe there's a trick or two to learn from that world. Just a program note, next episode we're talking with Ben Afia, who has trailblazed the tone of voice area for companies. Ben has a really interesting point of view, so you'll want to join us for that. On to this week's episode. Meg O'Leary co-founded Ink House Marketing and Media, which continues to be one of the fastest growing agencies in the country, with offices in Boston, San Francisco, and New York City. Ink House was recognized three times in a row by both Bulldog Reporter and PR News with the PR Platinum Award and Agency of the Year designations. In 2014, Meg was named one of the top women in PR by PR News. Prior to co-founding Ink House, Meg held key marketing positions at Charles River Ventures and Novera Software. She also served in various marketing, communications, and product management roles for RSA Security. As I said earlier, she recently joined a security startup, Capsule 8, as CMO. So let's get to the discussion. Meg, it's good to have you here on Confessions of a Marketer. I appreciate you taking the time for our chat. Mark, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you started Ink House about 10 years ago, just as the social revolution was starting with Twitter, Facebook, and the like. How has PR changed since then, and where do you think it's heading? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's seen so much change it's over the course even of my career of 20 years in marketing, and, and certainly a lot of that in public relations. You know, a, a couple of, of things happened about 10 years ago, or maybe even a little a little longer than that. One is that initially public relations, the value was in knowing how to reach reporters. 
So back in the day when I worked for a big New York City agency, just having the contact information for the reporter was a high margin business because uh, clients just didn't even know how to get, how to get a hold of reporters, um, you know, to pitch them. And then, you know, around the time of sort of, you know, what, what many folks refer to as version 2.0 of the internet and when social media and more user uh, generated content became available, uh, there was a fundamental shift in the, in the PR business. And that was that clients could figure out how to reach the media and pitch them on their own. And so suddenly, if you wanted a gadget review uh, in the Wall Street Journal by Walt Mossberg, it was no longer a mystery, not only how to reach him, but to go ahead and try to pitch him on your own. Um, so there really a lot of big, big agencies at the time were still charging huge, huge uh, retainers. But the value they were delivering, or at least part of the value, was in reaching that reporter and knowing how to reach that reporter. And the mystery was gone. Um, and so the PR industry changed because you, you, you had to figure out how to capitalize and not resist uh, this movement around user-generated content. And then certainly also at that time, there were some fundamental shifts in um, things like you know, Twitter happening and, and Facebook, and at that time, MySpace, and knowing how to leverage those tools uh, for getting media or just getting end user or end customer attention uh, directly was it was a newfangled was a newfangled thing. So so those are those are maybe table stakes for PR now, but they were big changes at the time. And, and I think one of the biggest changes is that traditionally, the the in PR you would you would find the reporter. And you would uh, pitch that reporter, and then you would hopefully get positive coverage, and that coverage would get passed along, maybe electronically. But at that time, print was king. You wanted to make sure you got it in the in the print edition. And now, you can generate news, and I've had uh, news hit the New York Times, and barely see a blip in terms of actual lead generation and, and, and people, uh, customers, you know, flo flocking to a client site. But I've seen something like Hacker News, which is actually a news curation service, uh, generate, generate huge leads. In fact, even in my own experience now, sort of in my next incarnation at, uh, at the start of I'm working on, we just did a, a press release about our funding two weeks ago, and we had a Fortune 100 company call us just based on the release. And, and good distribution of the release um, through traditional channels, but also through, through Twitter and through LinkedIn. And so anyway, there, there's sort of multiple factors contributing to it, but the, but the difference is it's all about content, but the distribution strategies have changed. Um, and that's created a huge, a huge difference in, um, in the craft itself. So where where do you think it's heading? It's it's kind of hard to predict, but is it just going to get more and more fragmented? I will be honest and say I thought ten years ago I was not sure um, that public relations was going to make it, uh, just because I was of the mindset um, that the that the value of reaching the reporters, of knowing how to reach the reporters, was such an important piece um, that it could it, it could actually um, it could actually dissolve PR in so many ways, and it wouldn't so much, not that it would, it would go away, 
but it would become sort of just an intricate, uh, intrinsic part of marketing organizations and not necessarily its own, its own craft. So uh, I was wrong then, so I could be wrong again, but <laughs> I, I guess what I would say in the next 10 years, I, I think it is going to be a lot more about the convergence of inbound marketing and content marketing with public relations, just because there are so many, um, th- there's so much less emphasis on traditional uh, media sources, and they don't generate the kind of response that they used to. So it was, it used to be very exciting to get into Time Magazine because you knew that story was going to live there for a long time and that magazine was going to sit on a coffee table and get passed along and lots of people were going to read it over time. And, and then for a while it got exciting um, for that to become online. But now if it doesn't become um, curated into people's um, social feeds, they're not looking at it. So, and, and people are becoming less and less discerning about what they share through their social feeds. And so as a result, you could have a really interesting story on a home, a homegrown blog. And if it's written in an interesting way, it could generate the same kind of traction and results for you as a story in a, in a major media outlet. I mean, not all the time. That's not to say that there's not value in getting coverage in, in major media outlets. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that, that folks are looking for interesting stories and they're looking to feed and be fed from their social channels. And so to me, we're going to see more of that, of that going forward. And I think the biggest obstacle in that is going to be, um, you know, the integrity of the public relations profession, the integrity of, of the journalism industry because of, of uh, fake news. And you know, I was just actually reading something yesterday, a Gartner put out a prediction that said by 2021, uh, Americans will receive more fake news than they do real news. Right. And so how, how to discern that issue is certainly much bigger than a public relations um, issue. But I, I do think that that's going to become the challenge over the next decade. And I think as practitioners of marketing and public relations, you know, I'm hoping that we stay uh, on the protagonist side of that and that we actually help help uh, sort through that problem. But what I fear is that there will be people who will leverage fake news um, as, as a marketing tactic. And so I think that's going to be a, a real challenge um, for the next 10 years. So because we do know that people are not discerning or, or, or as discerning as they used to be about the integrity of the media outlet, it's more about what gets into their social feed. And it's easy for a sensational fake news story to get into their social feed and for that to be consumed. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's from, uh, you know, Newsweek or the Chicago Tribune nearly half as much as it used to. So I think that that will be, that will be the, uh, the challenge. It will be to figure out how to really work people into, so into people's social feeds and more emphasis on that. Um, but at the same time, grappling with the challenge of, of fake news and, and frankly not capitalizing on it as public relations professionals. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. What's interesting about fake news is it's the same phenomenon, the ability to put up a website 
and uh, poor content into it that has given rise to fake news. It's also given rise to um, solo practitioners in the security space. You're familiar with him. Brian Krebs is one of these guys who has a website and is an authoritative source for information in the security space. And there are others that you could you could name. But it's interesting that that same phenomenon uh, that gives rise to someone who's authoritative can also give rise to fake news. I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I I also feel like there are there are sort of ebb and flow in people that uh, people consider to be influential and important. Uh, you know, uh, five, six, seven years ago, getting into TechCrunch or GigaOM right. was a lot was a lottery ticket. Um, you know, now yeah, it's great to get into those get into those outlets, uh, but it's not sort of what it used to be. These the same kinds of influences aren't there. But I do think you mentioned Brian Krebs, and what I, I think is interesting about him is it's it's his personal integrity mm-hmm. um, that people are people are betting on and the people sort of who who really know and I, I do think that um credibility will be linked to individuals instead of outlets um going forward or you know outlets that are synonymous with a particular individual so i, I do think for um you know the good news is is that i i do i do hope and see uh true influencers uh and and folks experts with integrity you know rising to the top but that uh, but that doesn't mean that they're going to have the loudest voice, uh, unfortunately. But it, it, it's a tricky, it's a, it's really a tricky situation because as consumers of news, we don't want to pay for news anymore. And, uh, or, or very few of us do. And so we want, you know, we claim to want really good news, but we don't want to pay for it. Journalists are making less and less money and they have to write even more stories. Many of them are being compensated on clicks, which means sometimes they need to put more eye candy or sensational topics than actual factual news that could be seen as not being as interesting. And so even at, at traditional high integrity news outlets, these, these journalists under such pressure that there, there's not as many of them as there used to be. They're not writing a couple stories a week. They're writing a couple stories a day and they are being measured by, in many cases, by clicks. And so they have to write things that are going to get people uh, tug on people's emotions or get them excited. And, and, and I hate to use the word sensational, but, uh, you know, really dull um, topics or or reporting in in, in sort of very straightforward ways. Sometimes people don't find that to be as exciting. And, it's made worse by the fact that that we don't want to pay for our journalism. And so we're not paying for as many good journalists. And it's a, that to me is the, the biggest part of what's broken uh, in, in the industry. And so I, you know, I don't, I still never have the answer, the answer to it. And there was promise sort of an advertising and ad tech in finding ways to compensate uh, media professionals and journalists. Uh, but, you know, we haven't quite cracked that code yet. Right. I, I think the extraordinary thing about some journalists, some journalists with national uh, profiles, is they're everywhere. So you'll see them on a morning show. You'll read their article in the middle of the day, see them on a show at night. Then they tweet 400 times during the day. It's a an extraordinary amount of productivity for a 24-hour period for many of these journalists. I think that's absolutely true, and 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 it's really all to feed their news outlet. It's to 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 pull eyeballs to their 
news outlets and to their advertisers. And there's a huge expectations um, on journalists to deliver eyeballs directly now. You know, it's no longer about the marketing department or the publishing department, you know, really getting getting readers. It's up to the journalists now. So it creates tremendous pressure on them. I mean, that's not to say that there certainly isn't support from other parts of the media organization, but the journalists have to be have to be rock stars. And I also think that they they have to write so fast that right. they are unable to vet stories like they used to. Uh, the statistic now is something like 80% of stories that you read in the news are pitched by a public relations person. Uh, and that is simply because the news cycle don't give time for journalists to go and, and sniff stories. They open their inbox or their Twitter feed or, you know, their Slack channels, whatever it is, and they sort of say, okay, there's a hundred ideas from different PR people and companies on stories that could write. Let me let me dive into this one, and they have to get it done in a matter of hours. They they're not able to do a lot of investigation. And you know, it's funny. I, I actually have a story. Um, it, it's from a while ago now, but it speaks to the issue. I had a a major venture capitalist. Uh, who invested in the new media space and basically, you know, moving traditional television programming over to the internet, a la Netflix, Hulu, that kind of thing. And so there was a major story that broke about YouTube and a very common public relations tactic is what we call sort of rapid response or expert commentary where you position your spokesperson as an expert on things going on in the industry. So, I I pitched the this particular venture capitalist to the New York Times to talk about this big YouTube story. But at this time, we realized, you know, it's not enough to just pitch them anymore. You actually have to deliver a quote or you have to deliver what their point of view is. So I just quickly, having knowing what this venture capitalist, how he thought about this deal, I just quickly put together a couple of thoughts and I sent them to the New York Times. I never heard back. Uh, and the next day, my client, the venture capitalist, was like, "I'm quoted in the New York Times. I, I, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't talk to them. Uh, and so, I mean, he was fine because it, it reflected his point of view. But my my story points to the incredible speed uh, with which journalists need to uh, produce stories, but also speaks to the scrutiny that." consumers of news need to put to, to to a story and so i am i certainly recognize that i am uh, i have benefit i've been part of this industry and I, and I have benefited um but it's it's that's a that's a dangerous game and i'm sure the new york times would say that's not their practice or what have you um but it was a, it was a breaking news and that that uh journalists wanted to get a story up quickly because it wasn't for the next day's paper it was who's going to get the first story up you know on the new york times uh, website, and although I didn't see it that day, it, you know, it had appeared within, you know, an hour or two of me of me sending it to the journalist, who frankly never responded to it. So, it's a, you know, these are these are strange times uh, in 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 the world of journalism. And I'd like to say that's extraordinary, but it isn't, is it? Well, I have a few other examples. <laughs> I have a few other examples as well, but I don't know. At some point, uh, uh, it, it's caused deep self reflection. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's. It's 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 definitely challenging. It's challenging for journalists, um, and uh, and it's challenging for consumers of news. We want to read things and believe that they're they're investigated and that they're true, 
Um, but there's, you know, there's just a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pre- we, the consumers are also the ones putting the pressure on the journalists. Um, so it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Right. Well, so you recently left Ink House to move to a startup as a CMO. So what's going on there? Yeah. So I um I had a great uh I think it ultimately was about a nine year run at Ink House and we built it from uh the kitchen table um, literally uh to you know, 100 plus employees on both coasts and so it was it was a great great journey and I was super proud of what we built there. Um, but I also had a very competent business partner in Beth Monahan, um, who really um, had had continued to have tremendous passion for the business. And while I was still was really enjoying the business, I, I you know, after some some self reflection, I realized that I what I loved most about the business was building it. And I think you know the Boston office at roughly 100 people had really grown to one of the largest agencies in Boston uh, in terms of number of people, if not maybe even like top two uh, and San Francisco was building, but of course I was in Boston, but there were, you know, lots of people out there. And so I decided that although public relations is an interesting business and interesting times, I was hungry to get back to the world of, of startups and kind of do it all over again. Although this time uh, I'm not a founder, I am fortunate enough to, uh, have been asked to be chief marketing officer um, by two really tremendous people um, in the cybersecurity industry, Dino Dazovi and John Biega, uh, to be part of launching their startup, which is Capsule 8. And what we're really focused on is real-time attack disruption for modern Linux environments. So the whole world of clouds and microservices and containers, um, which is kind of the next big transformation in the IT industry, uh, similar to maybe what virtualization was 10, 12, 13 years ago. And so learning how to secure that world is uh, new territory. And so I'm super psyched um, to be with these guys to help figure out the market, figure out our product, and bring something really new and exciting to the company. So I think I was employee three or four and, and joined about six months ago and now we're at 20 something and we've just raised 8.5 million in venture funding. So it's a whole, it's a whole new journey and I'm learning a lot of new things and I'm fortunate that these guys are, are betting on me to, uh, you know, take care of, of the full suite of, of marketing for them, which I haven't done um, in a while since my days at uh, Novera software, which eventually became part of IBM and, and RSA uh, where I worked as in um, marketing um, for for quite a while. That's wonderful, boy. We could talk for hours about uh, <laughs> security and and the like. But this is this has been wonderful. I really appreciate you uh, joining me here on Confessions of a Marketer. Oh well, it's absolutely my pleasure. I, I'm really uh, flattered that you asked, Mark. Appreciate you having me on. I really want to thank Meg for joining me. Hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. Next episode, we're talking tone of voice with Ben Afia, so please join us. This episode of Confessions of a Marketer was written, produced, and edited by yours truly. The theme music was written by T. Jordan of A-Class Productions. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Reed Edwards Global Inc., and this episode is copyright 2017. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time.
you stay home for the greater good. Secondhand smoke doesn't. It drifts through cracks in walls, air vents, and sink drains, spreading toxic chemicals that can damage lungs. Secondhand vape also puts your lungs at risk, even with the fruity smells. Protect yourself and the people around you from these secondhand dangers. Learn how at tobaccofreeca.com.